Uh, one of the things I was thinking of as I was going through this passage in preparation this week was that we all need reminders. And um, maybe you remember when you were younger, your parents reminding you, did you remember to do this? Did you remember to do this? Or if someone says, let me tell you by way of reminder, what are they saying? They're saying, you already know this, but I'm going to tell you so that you don't forget. That's what we mean by reminder. And a lot of you know, um, about seven months ago, at the end of June, I had a kidney transplant. And one of the things that I have to do now from the kidney transplant is take medication every 12 hours for the rest of my life. And so I set a reminder on my phone because even though some things can be habit, we still forget. And sometimes I'm like, oh, it's past 820, I gotta take my stuff. So we need reminders. Reminders of things that we already know, but a kind of a refresher. When I was reading this and going over this part of Ephesians 3, I thought, I think we all need a reminder of who Jesus is. We're all in church. You guys are here. I'm assuming that you want to hear from the Word of God this morning. But what we need to hear, more than anything I can say or more than any illustration or something, we need to hear from the Word of God. And so I want to remind you this morning from Ephesians 3 of the unsearchable riches of Jesus. We're going to spend most of our time on that. But my plan had originally been to take chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, and kind of finish this whole section. But as I started reading and praying and thinking, it was obvious we wouldn't get through all that. So today, we're going to look at verses 7 and 8. And next week, Lord willing, we will finish this section and do 9 to 13. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, if you haven't done that. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, and we'll pray. And begin for the morning. So follow along. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 through 8. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I don't think that any of us truly understand what it means that in Christ there are unsearchable riches. There are things available to us in our spiritual life that we don't even comprehend. And yet, Lord, through the ministry of your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you call us to search, you call us to think, you call us to reason and to pursue. And so this morning, as we open your word and try to expose what is in the text, Lord, would you give me faithfulness? There's nothing that I have 
of value apart from what your word says. And so please, God, speak through me. I pray for these brothers and sisters in the room, Lord, that their hearts and eyes would be opened, that they would see the glory of Jesus today and go from here better prepared to serve and worship and love. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you for your grace to me. Thank you for your grace to this church. Thank you for saving us and sustaining us. Pray that you'd come now as we look to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to take these two verses under the heading of riches in Christ, and we'll start with verse 7. Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Paul's been made a minister... We talked about this last week a little bit. He's been called to the ministry of the apostleship by Jesus, by God. This reinforces the fact that this was given to him, reinforces the fact that Paul didn't make this up. It wasn't his own message, right? This was something given to him. Jesus Christ commissions him to be the apostle to the Gentiles And Paul recognizes that this isn't his own made-up message, but this is the gospel of Jesus. He didn't invent it. He didn't pursue it. He didn't even want it prior to his conversion. Isn't that amazing? To think that one of the most influential people in all of Christian history spent half of his life rejecting, cursing, working against the very gospel that he would end up preaching. You talk about a testimony to God's grace. It's evident. So his assignment, if you will, from God is to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to bring the good news of salvation so that they would come to know Jesus. But more than just coming to know them, I think that in Paul's writing we see a desire that people not only know objectively about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, but that they come to worship him as well. I see this in Romans chapter 15, verse 8. Paul says this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's faithfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Paul isn't just after knowledge. Let's get the doctrine right. He's after that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. He wants to move from just this kind of heady thing into worship. This is the ministry that he was given in order that the Gentiles would not only come to know Jesus, but they'd come to worship and love and glorify him. That's the goal of his ministry. He wasn't just planting churches and establishing elders and practicing evangelism to offer uh, fire insurance and say, you know what, if you come to Jesus, you don't have to go to hell. Yeah, great. We all want that. And that's part of our salvation. But more than that, if we move beyond just what the gospel does in saving us, it produces in us a lifestyle and a, a, I don't even know what to say, worship The gospel should produce in us worship. And I think that's what Paul is after. It's not just this ministry of communicating truth. It's a ministry of worship that the Gentiles would glorify God. 
and the gospel that Paul preached, he says, of this gospel I was made a minister, it's the same gospel that you and I believe, that you and I share, that you and I live in light of. So what do we mean when we say the word gospel? We're going to do a little word defining here because I don't want to assume that we all think the same thing. The word gospel is very common in churches these days. You hear it in front of a lot of things. It's a gospel-centered church. It's a gospel nursery. It's a gospel potluck. It's gospel whatever. We hear the word a lot, right? And it's good. We should. The word gospel means good news. Just what it means. To the Christian... The gospel is what? The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. The good news is the life of Jesus. You've heard me talk about the gospel before, and I've said it should include four things of God, man, Christ, and response. Right? Who is God? Who is man in comparison to God? What did Christ do to reconcile those? And when you hear that, what should our response be? Now, that's not like this dogmatic thing where if you don't say it like that, you're wrong. It's not it at all. We just need to include those important elements in our communication of the gospel. The message of the gospel tells us that our sins can be forgiven and we can be brought back into relationship with God. Why? Why do we need to be brought back? Because the relationship that was with God in the beginning was severed because of our sin. And because of our sin nature. This is where we need to clearly understand not only what the gospel is, but the goal of the gospel. Okay, we need to understand the goal of the gospel. It would be easy to stop at sins forgiven in our communication. What's, what's the good news of the gospel, someone might say? And you say, well, in the gospel, your sins can be forgiven. And we say yes and amen to that, because it's true. We saw that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul said, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. But is that the ultimate good of the gospel, just to have our slate wiped clean? I think the ultimate good, the goal of the gospel, is not only to forgive our sin. Now, why wouldn't we stop there? If we stopped there and we said the good of the gospel is so that your sin can be forgiven, and you say, yes, I'm so tired of that sin, I'm tired of my conscience weighing on me, I'm tired of dealing with the effects of my sin, if we stop there, it puts all of the emphasis on you. doesn't it? I want my sin forgiven. I want my conscience cleansed. I want to be able to live my life and not feel guilty about everything. Go a step beyond that. What is the good of the gospel? The reason that forgiveness of sins is such good news is because with our sin forgiven, it has removed every obstacle to us coming to God himself. It's not just that we enjoy the benefits of being saved and say, whew, that was close, I don't have to go to hell, I can have a clean conscience, I can live my life. No, the point is not you, it's not me, it's that we can be brought into relationship with God. That's the good of the gospel. 
which is why we need to understand both the definition that it is good news, but what is its purpose. It is to eliminate every obstacle that would prevent you from coming to God. And so when Paul says, this is the gospel that I am a minister of, he does not just mean you can fix your life, you can live better. He means you can come to God. And that's the gospel. Jesus isn't just the means of our salvation. He is the goal of our salvation. He's it. And along the way, we experience all these wonderful, wonderful blessings. You think of Psalm 103. Bless the Lord. Why? Why does David say we should bless the Lord? Forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. And on and on he goes to list out those things. And they are real things. But what they do is bring us to God Don't stop with sin forgiven when we talk about the gospel. Speak in terms of the message of truth bringing us into relationship with God. That's the greatest good. Jesus isn't a means. He isn't a tool. He is the goal. That's the gospel that Paul is preaching. He says that this gospel was given to him. One of the things that we see so clearly in the life of Paul is his great humility. He doesn't take credit for his ministry. He's not boasting about how many churches he planted and how many elders he established and I converted this many people. No, that's not it at all. That's not his primary concern. He knows that he's a messenger. He's a steward. We talked about that word last week. He's been entrusted with a message and it is required that stewards be found faithful. Sometimes, actually quite often, when I meet someone and they find out I'm a pastor, one of the first things they ask is, oh, how big is your church? How many people do you have on a Sunday morning? And I mean, I understand why people ask this. I mean, it's in some ways, people look at a church or a organization or whatever and they kind of judge if it's doing okay by the size by what's going on but you know what I I never want to get to the point where I'm more concerned with keeping these pews full than I am with faithfulness to the word of God never because if you compromise on that and you say well I'm going to I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to do something else because we could really use 10 more families. What are you doing? Now, not every time, but more than likely, you are compromising something. Now, that's not to say that big churches are off. There are thousands of large churches that are preaching the gospel, discipling their people, sending them out and praise God. But I will not compromise the message of this gospel in order to fill these seats. And the time is coming, my friends, when it will not be a popular message to preach what this book says. It isn't right now. Look what's happening in our world. Go into your job and stand up and say, the Bible says homosexuality is wrong and a sin. See what happens. I'm not going to stop preaching that. Because the primary goal of a gospel minister is not 
success in the world's eyes, but faithfulness in God's. And that's what we need. We need more of that, not less of that. Church growth, as we understand it, was not Paul's main priority in his preaching of the gospel. And you can say, why do you think that is? Why don't we see more emphasis on that then? Well, I think it's because Paul knew that it wasn't his gospel. <laughs> it didn't depend on him. If, if he had not fulfilled the call, God would have raised somebody else up. It wasn't Paul's ministry. He wasn't making a name for himself. He wasn't getting t-shirts made and all this kind of stuff. They, or tunics, I guess it would have been at that point. But he wasn't interested in that. His goal was faithfulness to the gospel, and he says, it has been given to me. It was a gift, therefore he's not concerned with his own reputation. We read about a little bit of this in the book of 1 Corinthians. You guys remember 1 Corinthians 4? Paul asks them, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? What's he saying? Everything comes to us as a gift from our Heavenly Father. And we don't take credit for the things that God gives us because they're not ours to take credit for. And the same with Paul's ministry. He doesn't boast in his ministry because it was given to him by God. And by the working of God's power, he says. This isn't the first time that we've seen language of the working of God's power. Do you remember the end of chapter 1? When we were going through this, <clears throat> verse 18 Paul says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us believe, that he worked his great might in raising Christ from the dead. Paul knows he serves a powerful God. We see this really clearly in the demonstration of God's power in raising Jesus from the dead, and also, as a result, you remember chapter 1, guaranteeing you and I a future resurrection. It's the demonstration of God's power. So Paul receives this commissioning of the gospel. He knows it's a gift from God. He wants to steward it well, and he recognizes that it's not his to hold on to, but God's. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at verse 8. And as I said, I'd, I'd planned to do the whole section, but there was a phrase in verse 8 that captivated me this week. And the phrase is, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, I know most of you in this room, some better than others, of course, but I don't know where we are all at with this reality the reality that in Christ there is glories beyond your wildest imagination. In Christ there is immeasurable riches. And what I want to do now for the rest of our time is to lay out for you a picture of Christ and his work and what he has done and motivate you and I I'm not just talking to you. I'm preaching to myself. I want to be motivated to serve, to love, and to lay down our lives for the good of the gospel in praise of Jesus. So let's look at verse 8 
Let's read that again. Chapter 3, verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now Paul again exemplifies his humility by using this phrase, least of all the saints. We've all probably been around somebody who kind of has what we might call false humility. It's kind of the uh, shucks kind of mentality where they, they really want you to know what happened, but they don't want to just come out and say it, and they kind of tear themselves down so that somebody says, oh, no, 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 you're, you're, you're doing fine, you're whatever. That's false humility. That's pride. But that's not Paul. Paul has true humility. He knows the condition he was saved from. He knows the greatness of God's grace in redeeming him and bringing him into the ministry. And he knows that it was totally, totally undeserved. And it's not as if Paul was some kind of uh, slacker who didn't have any credentials. And we said, well, of course he's humble. He doesn't have anything to brag about. <laughs> Quite the contrary. Paul has an amazing pedigree. We read this in Philippians chapter 3. Listen to what he says starting in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. Even though Paul has an impressive resume, he doesn't count it as any value. He has humility, again, because he knows what has happened to bring him into this ministry. He says, I am the least of all the saints. So do you, just pause, do you recognize, if you are in Christ, do you recognize the grace of God and the power that was shown in bringing you from death to life, from darkness to light? Do you understand what happened? And does that produce in you humility or arrogance? It can do either one. You could look at your life and say, wow, I was saved from all this stuff. I must be pretty special. Or you can look at the salvation that God has given and say, I am the very least. Why would God extend grace? And the answer is, because that's who he is. He's a God of grace. Paul says this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul counted it a great privilege, I think, to be able to preach this message to the Gentiles. He counted it an honor. He didn't view his ministry as drudgery. He counted it as a high privilege. So, what was he preaching when he preached the gospel to the Gentiles? What's the message? Depends on what version you're reading. The NASB says unfathomable riches. New Living says the endless treasures available in Christ. NIV says boundless riches of Christ. All communicating the same thing. That in the gospel we see immeasurable 
never-ending, never-running-out riches of Christ. Now, in the context of Ephesians 3, we could rightfully say that these riches of Christ includes the message of reconciliation that we just covered in chapter 2 and into chapter 3. That through the gospel, Jew and Gentile now are brought into the family of God. That is, or was at the time, an unsearchable thing. No one would have anticipated that the gospel would come to both Jew and Gentile. This too is a work of God's grace. But given what we know of Paul and his writing and his propensity towards worship, towards doxology, I think there's more going on. I think there's more that we can see in this phrase. When Paul uses the words unsearchable and riches, do you think of any other passage in Paul? I thought of the end of Romans 11. Paul has just taken 11 chapters to describe the plan of salvation, starting with man and sin, and coming in chapter 3 into the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, and then the outworking of that in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and how we conduct our lives, and then look forward to future glory. And when he gets to the end of chapter 11, (coughs) this is what he says, oh, the depth of the riches And wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord. Or who has been his counselor. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Paul is bent on worship. And on giving God the credit where credit is due. Depth of riches, unsearchable judgments. We should read this and see that God is totally beyond us. Beyond finding out, beyond judgment, beyond discernment. He's not just a little greater than we are, He is much greater. He has endless knowledge, endless wisdom. In Ephesians 3, Paul uses some of the same language now to describe the riches of Christ. You see, Jesus is not just an adequate Savior. He did not possess in himself just enough to save you. It is so much more. It is so much more. He's boundless Endless, sufficient. Any word that we can think of doesn't describe it. That's what Paul means by unsearchable. We can look and look and look and look and we will never come to the end of who Jesus is. Does that mean we should stop looking? Everyone said no at the same time. We never stop. Unsearchable means never ending. You're not going to get to the end of it. It does not mean we should approach this and say, well, hands off, I guess there's nothing we can do. No, it means that we pour our lives into knowing this Jesus. Several years ago, I did a writing project and I was reading through the Bible and seeing all of the different ways that Christ 
fulfills promise, the ways that he um, works on our behalf, the things that he is. And I came up with this list of everything that I could think of that Christ is. This is not exhaustive because, as we've seen, we cannot exhaust who Christ is. But if you want to know Jesus, do you? I mean, do you really want to know God? Do you want to know who he is and what he's done? It's in the Bible. You just got to read it. But listen to what Scripture says about Jesus. He is our Savior. He's our healer. Our promise keeper, life giver, wrath remover, great high priest. He's our greatest treasure, our joy, our peace, our rest, our assurance, our way to the Father, our friend, our sin forgiver, our satisfaction. He is our example, our King, our Lord, our source of strength, our sacrifice, our faith giver, our desire, our hope, our portion, our path to pleasure, our guide, our affection giver, our life sustainer, our supreme longing. He quenches our thirst. He satisfies our hunger. He's our union maker, our covenant keeper, mercy giver, grace supplier, justice doer, hope of glory. He is our avenger, justifier, substitute, righteousness, protector, master, teacher, death destroyer. And of all the unsearchable things that we could ever think about, Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of God, bends over, opens his hand to you and says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden with your sin, and I will give you rest. That's Jesus. You want to know Jesus? Look to the Bible. Someone ever asks you, why would I believe in Jesus? You fire off that list. And you say, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't we? When Paul says that the riches of Christ are unsearchable, he means that there will never be a need that you have that Christ cannot fulfill. There will never be a pain too terrible that he doesn't feel it with you. There's not a high that is too high or a low that is too low that he cannot associate with you and comfort you and bring you through that. He is the all-sufficient one. He will never run out of grace towards you. He will never turn his back on you. His riches are endless. His grace is endless. His love is endless. That's what it means that his riches are unsearchable. You cannot outsin his forgiveness. You can't outrun his grace. He is sufficient in every respect. None of us truly understand this. I don't. I spent all week thinking about this and I have no idea. The riches of Christ are unsearchable. And wonder of wonders, God has prepared a future for all those who are in Christ to enjoy and explore and revel in this grace for the rest of eternity. Chew on that for the day. That's your future if you're in Christ. Everything that he is will be on full display to be enjoyed forever.
Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist preacher in London in the mid-1800s. And he wrote a lot, he preached a lot, and he spoke much of this very subject, of the glory of Jesus and what he is for us. Now, I usually don't use quotes in my sermons, especially long ones, but I read this this week. This is from Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening Devotional, which if you don't have, get it. And I'm going to read this because I cannot articulate this any better. Josh put it in our bulletin. You can follow along as I read it. But this is, in my estimation, one of the best summaries of the riches of Christ. You can listen or follow along as I read this. My master has riches beyond the count of arithmetic, the measurement of reason, the dream of imagination, or the eloquence of words. They are unsearchable. You may look and study and weigh, but Jesus is a greater Savior than you think him to be when your thoughts are at the greatest. My Lord is more ready to pardon than you are to sin, more able to forgive than you are to transgress, My master is more willing to supply your wants than you are to confess them. Never tolerate low thoughts of my Lord Jesus. When you put the crown on his head, you will only crown him with silver when he deserves gold. My master has riches of happiness to bestow upon you now. He can make you lie down in green pastures and lead you beside still waters. There is no music like the music of his pipe when he is the shepherd and you are the sheep and you lie down at his feet. There is no love like his, neither earth nor heaven can match it. To know Christ and be found in him, oh, this is life, this is joy, this is marrow and fatness, wine that is aged and well refined. My master does not treat his servants ungraciously. He gives to them as a king giveth to a king. He gives them two heavens, a heaven below in serving him here, and a heaven above in delighting in him forever. His unsearchable riches will best be known in eternity. He will give you on the way to heaven all that you need. Your place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. Your bread shall be given to you. Your water shall be sure. But there, there, where you shall hear the song of them that triumph, the shout of them that feast, and shall have a face-to-face view of the glorious and beloved one, the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is the tune for the minstrels of earth and the song for the harpers of heaven. Lord, teach us more and more of Jesus, and we will tell out the good news to others. Let's pray. It is so hard, Father, to imagine that you are more ready to forgive than we are to sin. It is beyond finding out. And yet we know from your word that your grace is sufficient. And Father, if there is someone here this morning who feels as though they have sinned beyond your reach, bring them back. Comfort them with the truth that when we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us 
from every unrighteousness. For those who have perhaps had too high of a view of themselves and their own salvation, Lord, would you humble us? Lord, through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, I pray that as we go from here, the unsearchable riches of Christ would be our thought today and into the week. That as we go out into the world, as we go into business and commerce and education and family and wherever you have us, God, would we not forget that you, through Christ, have demonstrated your love and that we now have access through his blood to come before you and for eternity will enjoy these riches. God, make this a reality in our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.